I'm Raul Guerrero, and welcome, my dystoplicans, to the Dystopian Republic. Our story for today begins on the early morning of August 15th, 1997. Much of the city of Dugadopolis, Bahia del Mercado, was asleep, but not the headquarters of Telnutral, a media company that aspired to be a centrist alternative to Gaiotel and Telezoro. Its lights, all on and hot, a production crew exited and packed into a van, driving off en route to a house four high school juniors were about to move into as stars of a reality show that sought to promote a sense of community to the young people of Bromelia in a time of ill-feeling pluralistopia. Soon after, the sun rose from its sleep, as did the citizens, the latest step in the city's slow journey back to normal. On her bed, still in her undies, and ignoring the ruckus outside, Ursela Echevarria coldly gazed at the dull ceiling of her dimly lit public housing apartment. The sleep she hardly got any of trapped her in thoughts involving her screaming in agony, desiring to harm others, and feeling like she's ignored by everyone. Inside a penthouse in the thicket of downtown, Flor Zapata tried copying her mother's magnetic looks and elegant movements to admittedly mixed results. She didn't let that get her down as she was pumped up and more than anxious to add yet another dollar value to her already moneyed name. An SUV pulled up and honked at a suburban house, pushing a slightly groggy Winston Quintero to come out and step on board. He wasn't all that excited about his new adventure, but chose to sign on to appease his parents, who saw the show as a wonderful opportunity for him to make new friends. Bo Garrido Jr. sat with a cool head and curious mind as the SUV he was in sped away from his mansion way up in the hills, taking him to a house not far from his own. The car ride got him hoping that the show he's starring in will do real good for society and not set him or the other three up for something really bad. Within Delgadopolis was a neighborhood where the rich, middle class, and poor met under common identity like three provinces. It was more affordable higher up the fancy scale, relatively safe from inner city violence and founded by hope itself. In one of its cul-de-sacs lay a two-story, four-bedroom home that blended in with the others along the newly built court. Its glossy poshness and structural modesty was the epitome of luxury, designed and built without the premium price or attitude. The SUVs arrived at the same time, dropping off Ursella, Floor, Winston, and Bo. That was where the four met and when their new adventure was set into motion. Floor was the first to introduce herself, hoping that by doing so, she'd excite her new roommates into greeting her with the same affability. With a radiant grin, Bo shook her hand, glad that he didn't have to be the life of their new living situation. Winston met his soft greeting and hand wave with gestures that were much duller 
and less animated, and Ursella looked daggers, smirked and growled at him inwardly like a badger. Amused by the apathy and hostility, Bo told them to get over themselves as they're stuck with him and Floor for as long as the network wants them together and that they may as well get used to seeing them because they won't be leaving them anytime soon. That irked Winston into rolling his eyes and Ursella into cracking her knuckles. Floor said that what Bo was trying to tell them was that the four of them should get to know each other better. She proposed an icebreaker where each person tells two truths and one lie about themselves and the others have to weed out that falsehood. Before Winston or Ursella could refuse, Floor told them to rest assured that she and Bo won't cast judgment on the truths and lies they tell. She added that if it made them feel any better, she'd have the crew not film the game and swear on their ancestors that they won't divulge any of the truths or lies to anyone. Finding no reason to object, Winston and Ursella reluctantly joined. Floor volunteered to go first, believing that doing so would push her roommates to open up just a little bit. She claimed to have been born and raised in the United States, that her favorite food was pizza and that she loved to exercise. Bo guessed that she didn't like pizza because a self like her would find its carb content downright repulsive. Floor asked Winston and Ursella what they thought was the lie. The ringing phone in the kitchen sprang Ursella into jogging for and answering it. On the other line, Milburn Palencia asked her how she was doing in her new pad. Ursella answered that all was chill and that she's breaking ice with her roomies. Milburn thought what she said was cool, happy to hear that her new chapter had gotten off to a good start. As for him, his Sunday afternoon was the usual talking with family and barbecuing sausages and burgers. Ursella's heart tickled at how content Milburn sounded as it relieved her fear of him thinking less of her for being on the show. But to be doubly sure, she asked him point blank if he was still mad at her for contracting with Tel Neutral. Milburn chuckled and told her to see that as water under the bridge as he understood why she chose to be a cast member. He learned to take Ursella's signing for what it was, realizing that she had her own path to follow and he needed to do his own thing. Not wanting to keep her on the phone, Milburn ended his call by recommending that she remain in the bubble she's in if she wanted to stay fully recovered. Given her past experiences, Ursella agreed with him, saying that it'll keep her from being overtaken by the anger smoldering in her heart. Right after she hung up, Floor wanted to know who she was on the phone with. Ursella grinned when she got called out by Bo for being nosy. In a sweet mood, she told Floor that she just got off the phone with a friend back at home and left it at that. Her reply helped Winston remember the call he had with his friend Jansen Kava Jr. the night before. But unlike Milburn, Jansen was the one making sure that Winston didn't harbor any hard feelings over being pushed to be on the show. His passionless look kept that phone conversation outside the sights of his roommates' concerns. 
going back to the icebreaker, Winston and Ursella guessed that the lie was Floor being born in the United States. Their guess turned out to be wrong, as her love for exercising was in fact the falsity. To Floor, that very activity made her groan the same way a child would at a plate of Brussels sprouts and spinach. Originally from Brumelby, Washington, she moved with her mother Geraldine to Delgadopolis a year ago to pursue their modeling careers. Floor couldn't say anything further about the move because Geraldine refused to discuss it in any more detail. She didn't mind that, assuming the information her mom withheld was none of her business. Out of the blue, the roommates all felt their bellies growl and rumble, pushing them to pause the icebreaker and come back to it another time. Flor and Bo could feel the ice freezing Winston and Ursella melt to cold water. They decided to embark on a shopping spree and stroll through the mall of Bromelia and told the crew to start filming. As the bread and butter of Denierkri Plaza, the mall was a Bromelian treasure due to its ability to bring people from all walks of life together for trendy products, fast food, and thrilling amusement. Normally, these would be the reasons why people would go there, but tonight brought a fourth reason forth. The back-to-school sales every store held. Delcodopolis residents were eager for the 1997-1998 school year to start, viewing it as the final nail in the coffin on an era many would rather forget. The excitement Floor saw and heard them express bewildered her, having never seen anyone in America get excited over the first day of school. But for Bo, Winston, and Ursella, it was a breath of fresh air they waited 12 plus years to take. Floor was in the dark about that era and her roomies kept where they stood in its triangle, secret from her and one another, and so did everyone around them. Despite Bromelia's state of peace being only in its 22nd month, adults and children went about their day like Gregorio's reign and the civil war that largely ran parallel to it never happened. That didn't stop bitterness and vengefulness from festering in the hearts of numberless Bromelians, two feelings kept hidden by the fear of others figuring out that they were either a yellow jacket or Black Hornet during the war. As a discussion topic, it was a Pandora's box that was best left shut. In Snake Eyes Pizza, its customers stuffed themselves on pizzas, calzones, and strombolis, and so were the cast members. Enjoying a meat lover's pizza, Floor expressed how positive she was about her future as a model. She imagined yucking it up with fashion designers from New York to London and seeing her sexy and opulent self on papers, billboards, and screens the world over. Bo promised Floor that she'll get everything she wants if she keeps on looking and posing her best. Having seen her pictures, he advised her to stay humble, saying that vanity will consume her whole life if she's not careful. Floor asked him if he's ever seen her boast about being sexier than everybody else. Bo responded that she definitely had the kind of personality that could fall victim to its own ego. His genuine concern for Floor's well-being stopped her from pettily arguing with him. Neither Winston nor Ursella 
gave their opinions as their eyes were glued to the boy band resin dress singing live at Tel Neutral's main studio as girls and women screamed their love for them. Those boys were Blythe's younger brothers, Barrett Jr., Garrett, and Jarrett, a trio that was taking the Bromelian music scene by storm. Their concert was thrown to the back burner by two breaking news stories to the angst of many patrons, including the cast members. Minutes ago, police reported two deadly shootings that occurred almost simultaneously, one in a poor part of the city and the other in a locality every bit as impoverished. They suspected that both shootings were politically motivated. The victims were found to have either Yellow Cross or Bromelian Democratic Front paraphernalia on them. Authorities hadn't yet identified the victims, nor did they have the names of the shooters. And before any of the roomies could react, a patron ran onto and passed Ursella, snatched her purse, and dashed out. When she gave chase, her roomies followed, intending to give her the needed manpower to subdue her thief. The man who stole Ursella's purse ran into a long hallway, swiping a full trash bin and hurling it at the roomies. She dodged the bin, but Bo was hit directly by it, and Winston tripped, hit his face on a Zanker Property Group portrait, and fell on his rear end. The camera crew stopped and fell into a pileup of humanity and equipment. Floor tended to her male roomies and camera crew, seeing Ursella still in hot pursuit of the thief. A past memory struck her with a horror that pleaded with her unhit roomie to stop as her purse snatcher could be leading her to a trap. Ursella ignored Floor's plea and chased her thief into the parking garage where the man she was after escaped her sight. As a matter of fact, she was all alone with the parked vehicles and echoing ambient hum. Ursella cracked the knuckles of her fists and strided angrily, telling the thief that she knew that he was hiding somewhere. This wasn't new for her as she's been robbed four times prior and got her stuff back after dealing street justice to the previous thieves at where they hid. So she expected her fifth experience to play out the exact same way. Ursella looked into and under vehicles and over truck beds and was irked to not see either her purse or the thief, even as she gave much of the garage vivid look-throughs. But then she found what she was looking for, hunkering in a gap between two black SUVs. Ursella told the man that his thieving behind would be wise to hand her the purse and take the punishment that's coming like a man. Her thief said nothing and stared sternly at her, peeving her into giving him to the count of three to do what she said or she'll make what would have been quick and painless be slow and painful. When Ursella yelled three, she heard a car rush and rev her way, disturbing her into looking back at an oncoming SUV. Her roommates and the camera crew regained their footing and composure, only for it to be knocked back down by screaming, struggling, and slamming. Knowing straight away that Ursella was in trouble, they all sprinted for the door to the parking garage. She was hysterically acrimonious as she struggled with three men in wolf masks. 
Her resolve to resist was way outmatched by the combined strength of her attackers. It hid how distraught she was that she ran right into a trap she could have avoided had she simply heeded Floor's warning. Although Ursella put up a valiant fight, her attackers would come out on top, restraining her for her purse snatcher to look down on. She ranted about having all four of them locked up with their prison cell keys thrown away if she wasn't let go at once. Her thief told her that he wouldn't do that to his own friend if he was her. His voice sank, Ursella's heart sadder than a ship after a terminal collision with an iceberg. The man's face was actually a convincing disguise and wig he ripped off as if he were a snake shedding its old, worn-out skin. His grayish-brown hair and peachy ivory skin revealed him to be none other than Milburn himself that froze Ursella enough for his henchmen to let go of her and remove their masks, revealing themselves to be his twin brothers Merlin, Maxwell, and Monroe. Her roomies and the camera crew bursted on by the door into the parking garage and down the first row of cars she ran down. They shuddered at the sound of Ursella screaming and begging them and anyone to help her. Her roomies and the camera crew ran to where she yelled and saw the SUV speed away. Bo chased after it, but its horsepower made evading him quick and easy. Sweating blankets and shivering, Floor called the police, reported that her friend was kidnapped and said she didn't know who took her, but told the operator that the abductors were driving a gray land cruiser. Waiting for police to arrive and wanting them to hurry, she, Bo, Winston, and their camera crew dismally couldn't think that their night could get any worse. Then in one fell swoop, they were all shot unconscious by non-lethal rounds impacting their skulls. Two pairs of loafers and flats walked over to their now-knocked-out selves. The four who owned the footwear were Jansen, his brother, Flood Sr., and sisters, Jesse Mingo and Lee Sons. They stepped over and on by the camera crew, Floor and Bo, but picked up Winston by his limbs, carried him into their yellow caravan, and calmly drove off. The next morning, Floor woke up and found herself and Bo lying on neighboring beds. Wondering where she was, a pressure burned her head with its hot iron stab, almost to the point of pushing her to ask someone for a bucket to puke into. Floor was able to keep her dinner in her stomach in time for Bo to wake up with a similar pain and nausea. After keeping his dinner from coming back up, he and she figured out that they were in the University of Bromelia at Delgadopolis Hospital. The last thing Floor and Bo remembered was seeing tiny flashes at the corners of their left eyes. A doom swept over them when they saw that Ursella and Winston weren't around. That was when the morning news came on and informed viewers that the latter two had been kidnapped last night and that authorities needed the public's help in finding them and their abductors. In reaction, Flor and Bo's memories came back to them, upsetting them so much that they couldn't put sentences together. 
Those two couldn't begin to fathom the hell burning Ursella and Winston as of their pondering. Late last night, a pair of run-down duplexes sat quietly in the midst of distant gunshots, faint fireworks, revving cars, and dirt being done. Their dense fencing, double-locked doors, guard dogs, and large barred windows protected them from the riffraff. In the left house, Austin, Andre, Arlo, and Avery were sound asleep in their bedroom. The locked and chained cellar between the two homes was where Ursella was in. Her agonizing pleas for her abductors to stop and let her go were mostly drowned out by the nightly noise beyond the premises. As for Winston, he too was being held prisoner, but in the basement of a run-down home in an equally sketchy area, suffering likewise by his captors as cousins Alexa, Flood, Jr., Clifford, and Sunshine slept soundly above. The deep cracks both saw form in floors aplomb, where his message that it was his turn to step up and take charge. He just hoped that she wasn't too demoralized to hear what he had to say. Boat told Floor to mark his words that they'll find Winston and Ursella track down their kidnappers and make their nabbing backsides pay. His assurances filled the cracks in her confidence with polyvinyl acetate, dried the adhesive to a wimpy plastic, and dissolved it into a watery goo as her grief persisted. This made Bo suspect that there was more to Floor's sadness than the kidnappings themselves, finding it odd that she'd have so much grief for two people she just met. Offended by his comments, she took him to task for trying to pry into her internal struggles. Bo responded that his prying wasn't to ridicule or shame Floor, and that his intention was to get her to extract the pain eating away at her psyche. The shocks his words spat out widened her eyes and plugged her mouth with her right palm, refreshing her memory of a crisis far more dire than the one that scared her into warning Ursella. Floor's internal pain was too enfeebling for Bo to maintain his resolve as far as demanding her to lay her thoughts bare went. He said that if she wished, he could take the lead in searching for Ursella and Winston while she stays home and recovers. Finding nothing to object to, Floor told Bo to knock himself out, not that it would do them much good. Her negativity didn't stop him from designing and printing missing posters of his missing roomies right after he and she were discharged and sent home. In her bedroom and pajamas, Floor cuddled in her bed's blankets, struggling to come to terms with what transpired yesterday. The camera crew decided to put production of the reality show on hold, debating whether to cancel it altogether. Bo drove and walked down many blocks, stapling his posters onto street signs, power poles, bulletin boards, and any place else that was legal for him to use. After running out of posters to staple, Bo watched a little TV, waiting and praying in his head that someone, somewhere, would call. He was fairly hurt by the kidnappings, but not to the extent that Floor was. Bo wasn't happy by any stretch, 
but knew that whatever happened next was in God's hands. Until Neutral, a conversation between Rhonda and Dina regarding their experiences during the Civil War was in progress. Rhonda wasn't surprised to hear Dina be a sympathizer for the former regime, but that didn't make discerning her condolences any less maddening. People like her were why she lost siblings, cousins, friends, and elders she knew her whole life. Rhonda held her tears back as to not give Dina the satisfaction of seeing her cry, but gratification was the last thing her yellow cross counterpart wanted to feel. The losses Dina suffered were comparable as she too came from a large family that was reduced to small remnants like lifeboats running from a sinking ship. But at the very least, she still had her friends to be with and talk to, whereas Rhonda only had Crystal. Dina's pity, though equally sharp, was all for her fellow Yellow Crossers who've died in battle, been given the needle, ended up in prison, or been forced into hiding. That spiraled Rhonda into a scorning rage, which she reciprocated when threats of harm made their way into that anger, and before Bo knew it, their segment became little more than two women expressing their intentions to come for one another, appalling him into scrolling through the channels. Bo turned to the serene colors and relaxing tunes of Gaiotel weather for solace. It tamed his nerves somewhat, but still left him less than content. From the time he could comprehend, Bo wanted to live in peace with everybody, no matter their bloodline, but alas, the civil war and what took place afterwards kept that desire from materializing. Bo's quest for pluralism was his biggest reason for opening his mind to a reality show he would have otherwise dismissed as being far-fetched. He viewed pluralistopia as a major step forward in achieving the unity his father Bo Sr. gave up trying to bring to fruition. Bo refused to follow in his footsteps by calling it quits, but knew full well that uniting the nation would be an uphill battle, given that people like him were a widely reviled minority, while the Rondas and Dinas of the world possessed much of the influence. A trepidatious waiting game began, dancing around Bo and Floor, happier than a group of skeletons around an innocent corpse. It messed up their quality time together with its mocking yells and pitiless stick pokes. Pacing around the house, they locked eyes but looked away without so much as a greeting or nod. As their waiting closed in on the one-week mark, the combination of insufficient sleep and cabin fever ailed them such that the tranquil rain was unsuccessful in comforting their spirits. But right when they felt that all hope was lost, Bow and Floor heard a knock on the door that wiped away their despair like it never arrived to begin with. The opening of the door revealed Winston and Ursella smothering the cast in a hug and frenzy that was tearful and jubilant. Their rejoicing blinded Bow and Floor from the fact that their roomies had not a scratch or post-traumatic look in sight. All that mattered to them 
was that Winston and Ursula were back and okay. The cast now whole again, the camera crew decided to carry on with the reality show. Episode 1 began with Floor, Bo, Winston, and Ursella introducing themselves, telling viewers where they're from and what they're interested in. Their first order of business was shopping for clothes and supplies to start the coming school year on the right foot. Floor made a sleek, curvy fashionista out of herself with the ensemble and supplies that took $1,000 out of her pocket. Bo adopted an approach that was more in line with the style that would be a defining characteristic of Myronbury's youth. Winston grabbed the white color, stripped it of all its light, and poured it all over what he bought, from spiked collar to pencil eraser. Ursella fell head over heels for the edgy graffiti, dense fabrics, and boastful hues that would ready her for the teachers she'll face. The four snapped a Polaroid of them smiling and holding each other tight and close with their new clothes on, dated August 24, 1997, at 8.30 p.m. It was taken exactly 12 hours before their first day of school was to start. Bowen Floor went to bed that night certain that the kidnappings were freak deals and not signs of things to come. They woke up the next morning fresher and cleaner than a springtime meadow. TV channels and radio stations had a field day over a school year that was minutes from ringing its first bell. Across Bromelia, children and teenagers entered buses on the move to their schools, all dressed and equipped to impress their peers and teachers. Riding in an Escalade, the cast members looked over each other's schedules and found that they had the same homeroom, the only period all four of them had together. Locking hands, they promised to be four of a kind, regardless of how far apart their classes and extracurriculars take them from one another. At Kurohaso High School, teachers made final preparations as students hung out outside, talking, teasing, and displaying their affection publicly. Nothing about that warranted raising any red flags, but the groups that formed were noticeable and rigid in form. A group of urban kids recognized Ursella and pulled her by the sleeves into their circle. Her roomies tried to join her, but were told to shove off and be with their fellow fascies. In a shocking turn of character, Ursella repeated what the kids said, intending to leave their beatdowns if they didn't leave. That mortified Floor ticked off Bo and offended Winston to such a degree that he was ready to go on a rant. But then, a clique of gothic teens dragged Winston by his collar into their group. When Bo and Floor tried entering their circle, they were threatened, insulted, and pushed away. Not only did Winston not reprimand them, he restated and redid their comments and actions, vowing to help the clique kick Bo and Floor's commie tails if they didn't F off. His character turn was no less mortifying and angering than Ursella's was. Seeing what went down, a third group comforted Bo and Floor, confiding in them that they too had been pushed off by various cliques. They weren't nearly as shocked about the betrayals, seeing them as synonymous with post-regime Vermelia, pretending that all was normal once more, when in reality, 
it was a wound that never stopped bleeding. Overcome by heartache, Flor went on a path that wailed and winced in her cella, for turning traitor to her and Bo, despite them being why they're safe and sound. She exclaimed that they'd be six feet under had it not been for her and Bo. He tried his best to keep Flor from reducing herself to a child crying into the asphalt. Her grief mostly recomposed, Winston asked her how she and Bo could be his saviors if he wasn't in danger in the first place. Ursula said that her captors never endangered her life at any point either, calling out Floor for daring to claim that she saved her when all she did was sit sadly on her rear end. In a to hell with it moment, Bo showed everyone his white dauber beads, pushing all their gasps out and half of the kids in his group into following suit that shocked every kid into reflecting on the colors they and their loved ones wore during the Civil War, whether they were yellow, black, white, red, or non-existent. The bells ringing directed students to their first normal class since November of 1984. Many students that wore a color found stepping into a regular classroom rather surreal, not having experienced such a thing in so long. For some, it was their first time going to a class that either wasn't in the home, run by militants, or at an authoritarian's behest. Sitting down, Flor fought the urge to bury her face into her desk in unhappiness. Next to her, Bo rubbed the back of her hair, sharing in her appall. His relentless frown at Winston and Ursella was that of a woman scorned. The looks Bo got in return were angry wasps after being swatted multiple times. Hidden in Winston and Ursella's scowls were a pair of teenagers in a duress that foreordained them to stay true to the blood in their veins. They didn't want to betray Floor and Bo, but felt like they had to stab their backs in fear of being disowned for associating with the enemy camp. The teacher welcomed the four and their classmates back to the normal she was sure her students were waiting ages for. Her first order of business was directing their attention to the TV where Sinclair had a special message he'd like to give to the students of Bromelia, live, unclosed circuit television. His name aroused a growling virulency in the students who wore black, yellow, and red. Their white opposites were much less hostile in their reactions, but that didn't mean they were all that elated to see him. In fact, only the kids who had no colors to wear were thrilled about the president talking to them directly. Speaking of whom, Sinclair played host to a new chapter that would relegate the one before it to the trash heap of history. He tried hitting home the importance of always springing forward and never falling back. That philosophy, while full of hope, was rendered quixotic thanks to what he oversaw after Gregorio's regime fell and before he was sworn into office. Even though the relapse was over a year out, the nation's youth very much felt its outer bands, hence the slashes that split the cast of pluralistopia in two, and as fate would have it, 
those rings would be the first of many that would forerun an eyewall so dreadful that every Bromelian would remember it for all time. And that was Pluralistopia. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.